take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Stand with me while we read the account of the birth of Christ. If you're capable, stand and follow along as I read. We'll start our teaching on the advent of the incarnation of Christ uh, over the next few weeks as we work our way into uh, Christmas, the, night, the, the two days before Christmas, and then our Christmas Eve service as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken in all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken from Quadarius, who was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. and She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some angels staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he laid in the manger. And when they had seen, the, seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this Christ. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, you blessed us once again with truth lived out. We have stepped in the presence of you displaying your salvific work in people's lives. You taking people who were dead in their sins and made them alive in Christ. And, and by your grace, through the ordinances you give to the church, you have allowed them to proclaim that truth to us. We have heard testimony. We have heard testimony from your children that you change lives. That you take those who have little desire for you or even just some religious affections and you make them followers of you. It is miraculous, Lord. Because we know left to ourselves we are dead in our sins and there is nothing good within us. 
There are none who seek after you, God. We all go our own way. But you, the great shepherd, you go and collect us one by one, each with a unique testimony of how you did it, all through the work of of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word, how it plows the heart, how it plows a hard heart and removes the heart of the stone and gives it a heart of flesh that can love, Lord. These were testimonies of that. And our hearts are encouraged as we listened. We thank you for so many in this room that give the same testimony in a sense, Lord. Though the circumstances may be different from person to person, each one would give the same testimony that we did not belong to you. We were lost and dead in our sins, and you saved us. And so we praise you that we could experience that this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you came. You knew you were going to save these beautiful brothers and sisters that we've seen today and us as like. And so you had a plan laid down before the foundations of the world. It was, in essence, to send yourself, the only one who could stand in equality with you. And you sent your son, and he took on flesh and became a man. He lived a sinless life. And he died a perfect death. And you applied that righteous standing to us from your son. And we are here today because of those things. And so Christmas is an important time to us, Lord. It's an important time for us to be reminded again that Jesus stepped out of heaven and added flesh to his deity so that he could be born here, walk in our steps, and eventually be our substitute. It is glorious to think of that, Lord. And so to us, Christmas is a very special time, Lord. Because without the true Christmas story, the message of Christ coming to earth, there would be nothing we're celebrating. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time of year. Capture our hearts and minds. Give us strength, Lord, to know you better as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Beneath all that tinsel and presents and shopping and traffic, um, there is a holiday, isn't there? And I really enjoy preaching this time of year because it captures us. It's such an event, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's an event that can't be quenched for the believer. I know there's people who get in battles about when and where, and I talked about that, uh, I think, at the Christmas banquet. Um, but regardless of when you think Jesus was born, whether it was this time or fall or spring or wherever the arguments all are, the story of his incarnation cannot be quenched. <laughs> it is every bit a part of the story of our salvation as anything else. God needed to come to earth. He needed to do what we could not. And that's the incarnation of Christ. The creator of the world, the God of glory, adds flesh to his nature. We can celebrate Christmas, and, and I hope you do. I hope you have a great time with your family. You enjoy those times. And even at our best moments that we have of having people around the table or watching children open gifts or reconnecting with, with people we haven't seen. At the end of all of that, we still have to deal with eternity. 
And for the world, um, this is an escape time in, in many ways. They run credit cards up. They'll, they'll uh, try to get through life because there's this time of rejoicing at some level. And yet at the end of the day, there's eternity coming. And really, Christmas has a lot to do with eternity. Because <laughs> if that, that Savior, that glorious one, Jesus Christ, is which each of those who are baptized, baptized there spoke of as their Lord and Savior, if he does not step out of heaven, we all, we all see eternal judgment. But he did step out of heaven. And, and we praise the Lord for that. We don't have to cry to, I want you to think about this. We don't have to try to create heaven on earth. This is what the world tries to do. They try to get the best of everything, whether it's relationships and money and all the things. They try to create a heaven on earth. We don't have to do that. In fact, I would say for many, we experience great hellish times here on earth. But Christmas reminds us that there's an eternity coming. The incarnation of Christ is about him coming to the earth. And it's not the last time that he's going to come. This morning, just for our few minutes that we have left together, I want to focus on the topic of rags to riches. Look at our first thought. From lowly birth to king of kings. It's an amazing thought. When you read this story, you can't help but be somewhat disturbed at what's going on. The government says, look, we want to count you. We want to know who's out there. And government often does things where they don't realize the repercussions of what's going to happen. The couple, like all others, are heading for their place of birth, where they're, the cities that they are attached to, where they're registered to. No one gave thought to where you're going to put all these people. And Joseph and Mary have a unique circumstance. They're pregnant outside of wedlock. But it's not by Joseph. It's by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says the Spirit of God placed the Holy Child within the womb. It is a miraculous, miraculous event. But here they are. And when you look at this text, they, they seem to be alone at first. There's no room for them to stay, so they end up in some kind of livestock holding of some sort. And there, when the days were completed, it says in verse 6, she gave birth. Now, for us men, there's a certain amount of that we don't understand. <laughs> but for many of us men, we've been in the rooms when our wife gave birth. As we did our best to encourage them as they suffered through that process. That process hasn't changed since Adam and Eve, particularly Eve, gave birth to Cain. It still comes with great pain and great hardship at times. And though the narrative does not tell us all of that, it is no doubt that she brought this child into this world in a very hard labor. And there's no one there for a while. It seems heavy when you read these accounts early in the Gospels. And there's several reasons. We sang a little bit of, as Hayward pointed out, that verse. The, the religious leaders had taken the law and had put such weight on people. This is why Jesus said, take my yoke. It's 
light and easy. It's, it's me who will accomplish it versus you being yoked down with the weight of trying to have come to God through law and standing. There's a heaviness about the time of Christ when he's here. They had been duped into the belief that if you keep these and don't do that and wear this and don't eat this and all the list of the law according and all of the traditions that were added to it, there was a weightiness to it. But then you get to a verse that begins to show you that God has a different plan. Verse 10, the angel said to these shepherds out there who certainly would have known they were caring for the sheep that most likely were temple sheep, probably bearing lambs um, or tending to those who would die soon as Passover would roll around. They knew the weight of the law. It knew it mean death because they were taking care of these lambs. But the angel says to them in verse 10, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. What an amazing statement. Law and legalism, particularly the misuse of the law, always robs joy. <laughs> Anytime that you try to gain your way to God through who you are or what you do or what you don't do, you will struggle with joy. I think you heard that in several of those testimonies. Think about this. There is this weight of legalism holding over the world. And the angels know God's plan. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. They, they know what God's going to do. And so they report to these shepherds, don't be afraid. Because you know what always comes with legalism? Fear. Always comes. Did I do enough? Will God accept me? What will happen when I get to the door of heaven? Oh, it's a terrible way to live. And I love that these angels start with this. Don't be afraid. We're not bringing you more things to do. We're bringing you the true message. In fact, what I think they're saying, we're bringing you the message of the one, the only one who can keep the law. And not only will he keep it, he will fulfill it. And Christ will be the end of the law, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, for you. And with that, they espouse this great news. I bring great news of great joy. That's what salvation is. That's why we clap, isn't it? Isn't, well, that was, oh boy, they, they really wordsmithed that very well together. No, we clap because they have received what we have. They've been forgiven of their sins and they're giving public testimony to that. They've received the good news. Ulangelion, the, the Greek word for the gospel, the good news. It always comes with great joy, doesn't it? And notice in that verse, it'll be for all people. Junior high and high school. Married, pregnant couples. Sisters in the Lord that have gone through hard times at times. I mean, think about it. Older, younger, ethnically diverse, economically diverse. The gospel punches through culture. It punches through all of your own struggles and problems. And it draws people to Christ. 
and secures them. The gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ. I do think it's easy sometimes to forget that the babe in Luke 2 here will also ride a white horse someday. It's easy to kind of look at this and say, oh, isn't he cute? Isn't that amazing? Oh, this poor couple, how hard that was. Ooh, into the story, he's coming back. And he has a sword coming from his mouth. And he will separate sheep and goats. And he will judge. And he will collect those who are his and he will take them into his eternal paradise into heaven. And there he will reside with them forever. Those who are not his, he will rightly, perfectly judge for all of time and cast them into the lake of fire. But I think sometimes it's hard when we look at this. This is the one who has power to calm storms, cast out demons, feed masses, heal sick, but he's a babe and he's he's the power to create the world in six literal days and command people to bow the knee to him in, in a time when Philippians 2 says that he will be exalted before all men. And yet when you look in this text, he's lying in a manger, he can't walk, he can't talk, he can't feed himself, he is dependent on his earthly parents. Because he represents you and me. He's like us now. In the fact that he has no sin. He's in complete submission to his father. He's doing this for our good. And he has humbled himself in this incarnation. And when you think about the incarnation of of almighty God. The form of Jesus Christ coming and taking on humanity. It is mind-blowing. And if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you will never understand it. <laughs> you won't get it. And you'll keep on trying to prove yourself to God. I want you to turn to Isaiah 42 with me. We should not have been um, unaware of how Jesus was going to come. It seems like the whole religious world of Jesus' time had no idea it was there, and if the only people who came were divinely told to be there, whether that be the Magi a few months or years later as they show up to the house, or the shepherds, all of them had to be divinely directed because they were not looking for this type of king. They were not looking from somebody in literally wrapped in rags. They were looking for something else. Look with me at Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. Notice here, God is speaking of his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. After 40 some odd chapters of, hey, judgment's coming. You have failed to make me God. You have rejected me, nation of Israel. You have set up other gods. You have broken every command. You have had regardless, reckless abandonment of who rescued you and brought you out of slavery. And so all these chapters of judgment. And then you make the corner. And you get into these type of chapters. And here he is told, this is the one. He will come. My servant, that word's a very important word. He's coming in flesh. He's now a servant. 
The king of kings is now a servant. And here God says, I will uphold him. He is my chosen one. I will find delight in him, God says. Boy, if you don't like the story of Christmas, you don't like what God likes. He loves the incarnation. Texts like the prophets do so often jump in and out of the, the present and, and coming and even future. Often he will bring forth justice to the nations. And, and, and look, when you think about that verse, he does right away. <laughs> I mean, there are people who get saved in his ministry who begin to follow him are not of the nation of Israel. He brings in all people. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus himself says, if you lift me up, I will draw all men to myself, all peoples, all tongues, tribes, race, everyone I will draw, people from every form of walk of life. And he's bringing justice. And he brought justice through the cross, but he will bring it in the end. All people will look upon him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The Bible is clear of that. But notice verse 2. He will not cry out or raise up his voice. Nor make his voice heard in the streets. That's very opposite of what you think this coming king should be, right? You think this king should come storming in and crush enemies. Give us now the riches of the world. Take care of Rome. Move them out. Disciples even thought of this. Even up till his death, who will sit on your left and right in your kingdom? But not Jesus. He walked the streets and got accused of being in league with Satan. He often moved away from the cities and got out of the streets where he could speak in the country to people who would listen. Verse 3 is unique. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. Look look at this. A dim burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth judgment. There the Lord begins to speak of this humble life that he has. You ever had a candle? You're going, what does this verse mean? And if you walk too fast, the candle goes out, right? And so you put your hand and you walk like this. (laughs) that's what Jesus does with us. He walks very careful with his children. He instead cradles them and protects them from being extinguished. It's like a bruised reed. He's very gentle with us. He is the gentle lamb. He, He does not come from royalty and where everything is handed to him. He handles everything carefully. Done as the Father wants him to do. If we were to look further into Isaiah 53, we see this this verse in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Very tender. Step on a plant, won't last. Jesus was very tender as he came. And like a root out of parched ground, the ground was so spiritually deprived when Jesus came. And out of that parched, cracked, spiritual landscape of the souls of man comes a blade of truth called the Lord Jesus Christ. Pushing through that hard soil, the hard hearts of mankind, here he comes tenderly as a babe in a manger. Isn't that amazing? If I would have wrote the story, I would have had him do it different. 
come get me first, and then let's go take some names. Right? That's how we would do it. But not him. He shows up with tremendous humility as a shoot coming through parched ground. The verse goes on to say in Isaiah 53 too, he had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. Last week we were looking in Mark chapter 6 and realized that they looked at Jesus and said, isn't this the carpenter's son? <laughs> isn't this Mary's son? And we have his brothers and sisters with us. He's nothing special about this guy. Always looking on the outside. There was no appearance that should attract us to him. As we go on and look at Isaiah 42, it says this, verse 4, He will not be disheartened or crushed, but until he has established justice on earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law, for his teaching. And so though Jesus is mistreated, though he is not recognized for who he is, though he is eventually put into death, he is never disheartened from what God has him to do. And this whole idea of coastlands, or some translations may say islands, and when you live on the coast or you live on the islands, you're always looking for somebody coming. <laughs> when you look at this, you see Jesus coming. And nothing was going to stop him from fulfilling it. This is an overwhelming example of humility when you look at Luke 2 and you look at texts like this in the Old Testament. We find a person here who deserves our worship for eternity as you look at Jesus, whether he's in the manger or on the cross. And yet in both circumstances and from beginning to the end of his earthly ministry, throughout his childhood, he humbles himself. He spends time in the womb of a woman whom he created in order to save her and give her saving faith. It's amazing. Romans 3.26 says, for he, for he was the just and the justifier. He was right in every thing he did. So in his coming, he did it rightly. He was righteous in everything he did. And then his finished work on the cross was what that was able to justify, declare righteous, you and he, myself. And so, so when you look at this scene within the stable or, or in the cradle here. He is both gentle and yet you know his power if you're a believer. And so we marvel at it, don't we? Jesus himself said, for I'm the son of man. And here's what I've come to do. I've come to seek and save the lost. Wow, what a statement. It's not what people wanted him to do, but this is what he had sent to do. And he would say it over and over again throughout his ministry on earth. And yet so many were lost and so many couldn't hear. And yet he spoke and the ones who granted faith believed. Over and over. And it happened to you and I as well. Notice this bruised reed. I want to go back to this for just a second. It's, it staggers me, the writing of the scriptures at times. He says, a bruised reed he will not break in a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish this is jesus who one day would will destroy proud sinners with a single blow he'll separate and yet he's able to carry this bruised reed without breaking it that's what he does with us he's so gentle and yet so powerful in other words 
Do you see yourself in his hands? Are you the bruised reed? Are you, are you, do you see how, how our Savior, our God and Savior has gathered you up and he gently carries you so you are not extinguished? That's what we heard today. And that's, that's what he does. And so this humble Christ lying in a manger serves as an example of how we were saved and then how we live our lives. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble and, and it's, it's marked in his life. He came humbly. And we marvel at him. So Christmas is an opportunity for us to remember the sacrifice Christ made. Since he did not count himself to be equal with the Father. But, but as Philippians 2 says, but humbled himself and became a man in order to save us. And humbled himself even to the point, even to the point of death on a cross. And so we marvel at this. But at the same time, we don't leave him in the manger, do we? And we don't leave him on a cross, do we? He is not in the manger and he's not on a cross. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He himself has said, all things have been given to me. I have all power and authority on earth and in the heavens. I have it all now. And in his hand is a scepter. He has now authority. And so he goes literally from rags. If we study that period of time when a baby was born, they tore rags up in cloths and soaked that baby up from all of its... <laughs> wetness that comes out and they and there they're soaked up in all of that and warmed up in that and he's laying in a manger to the king of glory coming and someday we'll see him and we will marvel at him second thought and we'll close with this from rags to eternal riches to rags to eternal riches Hitchhiking on that thought, Christ himself was born of such lowly means, now moves to unveil to us his glory. John said it this way, as who walked with him for all those years, he said, The word became flesh, and we beheld, or we saw, we, it was unveiled to us his glory. The glory of the only begotten, Son of God, full of grace and truth. They beheld him. For many people, Jesus is just a manger scene. He's something that you may sing a song. You could listen to Celine Dion or somebody sing, Oh, Holy Night. But not two believers. We, we see him unveiled in his glory. Listen to his words the night before his death, John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Listen carefully to this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Oh, you're not just dealing with some infant. You're not dealing with some man who was a martyr or a good example on the earth. You're dealing with God. Return to me the glory we shared. Philippians chapter 2, nine, uh, chapter two verse 9 the Word of God says this, For this reason, after he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even to the death of a cross, God highly exalted him. 
not kind of exalted him, but highly exalted him. In other words, he answered the prayer of John chapter 17, 5 and gave him back the full veil of his glory, pulled that full veil away. And anytime somebody gets saved, you see the glory of him. At some level, you see his glory. Because you're not believing in a mere man. And yet, through his suffering, the true followers of Christ move from rags to riches as well. Think about this. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. That means there's no spiritual pulse at all in us. We know that, don't we? If you're visiting with us today, we do not believe that you in any way have capability of getting yourself to God. The Bible is very clear. There is no love for God. Isaiah 64, back in the great prophet, as he's wrapping up that, that uh, great letter to the nation of Israel, says this, 64, 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Ooh, that statement's a tough one. You go, boy, you mean like a rag in the garage? Mm, probably not. Probably like a rag a woman would use. It's very descriptive in the Hebrew. It's not, not clean. Not something you would want to keep around. The Bible says all of us are that way. Our righteous deeds, those things that we think that God should accept of us, they are just filthy. And all of us wither like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, the Bible says here in chapter 64, verse 6, take us away. <laughs> Every time you see a leaf fall this winter, blows away. That's who we are without Christ. You have no relationship with Him. Paul in Romans cites several Psalms, says it this way, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none. There's always that person who thinks they're okay, that they've done the right things. There is none who understand. There is none who seek for God. You go, wait a minute, I want God. No, not on your own you don't. You want a God, you don't want the God. And you know when you found the God because you humble yourself and you realize I have nothing to offer you. I will die in my sins if you don't save me. Did you hear several of those people said, I begged God to save me. That's when you know there's a the, there is a the God. Paul goes on to say, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. And our wages of sin is only death. But God gives new birth. And as we examine over the next few weeks the birth of the Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Christ here on earth, we see such similarities in ours. We too were birthed. We were given a new birth. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's all that man probably thought about is how he was going to get into the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives him an answer because of his retrobate mind, his deceived mind, his deprived mind. He could not understand it. And he goes on to say, what should my, how can I enter my mother's womb again? 1 Peter chapter 1 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable. 
I want you to think about that. So new birth has to take place, right? We have to go from rags to riches in a sense. Rags spiritually to riches of eternity. And so there's a birth that must take place and it cannot come of perishable things. You cannot get it by taking communion. You cannot get the salvation by being dipped in some water or water thrown on you or any other work that man has come up through the eons of life. Those are all perishable things. Your good works, your good deeds, your good food that you think makes you better than somebody else or whatever it may have been that you believed would bring you to God, those are all perishable things. The verse says that we are born again by imperishable That is, and listen to this, through the living, enduring Word of God. And I think what struck me of so many of the testimonies is by God's grace, He led them to be under the Word of God, to hear it preached. Such a good example for all of us. You want people to get saved? Get the Word of God in front of them. The word of Scott doesn't save anybody. Your word doesn't save anybody. The word of God changes people's lives. So don't be ashamed of the word of God to speak it clearly to someone. To invite them to something where they'll hear it. To encourage, to put them under God's great teaching. Because what happens is through the word we become born again. So the Bible tells us that He rebirths us, doesn't he? They were speaking of their rebirths. Isn't that cool? They were born physically. They have birth records, birth certificates. But they were talking about the most important birth, being born again. Paul says it this way, Therefore, if any was in Christ, he or she is a new creature. You're new. Old things Praise God, have passed away. Because the old things take you to hell. <laughs> your goodness, your, your, your own thought that you could get your way to God in some way, all of that stuff passes away and you want nothing to do with it as a Christian. You only want the new things that have come. And with new birth, God grants a new eternal position. Bella spoke of the lesson I gave at camp. And we begin to realize that though this earth may have some treasure for us, there is nothing in comparison of what awaits us. The Bible says that he saves us and transforms us from glory to glory. And I always tell people I believe that's the glory of salvation, that we see Jesus Christ in all of his glory to the glory of stepping into his presence. And he is transforming us throughout this life to be in the image. But here we are saved, declared righteous. The thief on the cross was ready to spend eternity with God because Christ saved him. And though he did not have a long time to live, his position was perfect before God. You and I, we get to live for Jesus for a little while. And though life may be difficult, it may come with pains and sorrows and sickness and difficult things because this world is fallen and we live in a fallen world and we have bodies that are subject to the fall. There is great riches coming. And they're all connected to Jesus. 
You can't separate eschatology from the lordship of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of end times is about Christ. And he will bring us into glory and he will introduce us to the Father. He will bring us through his works to him. In fact, let me just close with two more verses. Because these will stagger you of our position we have. These dear brothers and sisters, when they received Christ, not when they were baptized, but when they received Christ, this is what happened to them. The Spirit himself, John 8, 16, began at that moment to testify with their spirit that they are children of God. The Almighty three-in-one God, the triune God, now began testifying with their spirits that they belong to God. That's a testimony. Isn't that amazing? When you received Christ, the Spirit of God was now testifying that you belong to God. There, you can't write this stuff. It is amazing to think about that. That God's saying, this is my child. Nobody can have him. Nobody can take her. She belongs to me. And so that happened. You, do you, can you put a price on that? I mean, think about the riches of that statement that the Spirit of God now identifies us with the Father. It's indescribable. And you can't fathom the depth of the riches that come with that. The verse goes on to say, and if children, listen to this, try to put your mind around this for a moment, just think with me. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs, some translations say it this way, joint heirs with Christ. Wait a minute. Didn't we already said that God gave everything to the Son? And this says we're joint heirs with Him, fellow heirs with Him? You go, well, Looked at my checkbook this morning. <laughs> well, don't get lost in that stuff. God will get you through this life. And he'll say, welcome in, son, daughter of mine. Sit at the table with me, family member. There's no greater riches than that. One more, just to roll your socks up and down one more time before we leave. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his name is what Peter's saying. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Did you hear the words of that? Who according to his great mercy, it's all in passive tense. He's doing it, we're receiving it, right? Who according to his great mercy has caused us us to be rebirthed rags to riches Peter understood this and notice what he says to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead when he got out of the grave we got out of the grave it's one reason why the guys say baptized you know died with Christ risen anew with Christ I mean that's exactly what happened all that was applied at uh, Selena's uh, uh, time and moment when Christ opened her eyes with the rest of them. He, at that moment, they were given this new life, this new birth. And all that Jesus did was applied to their life. Verse 4, 
to obtain an inheritance. Hmm. My parents passed away. They're, I'm hoping to get a 30-30 and maybe something else, but <laughs> not a lot of money there. But listen to this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. It's undefiable. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. Now listen a little closer here. Which is protected by the power of God. You think a bad turn in the economy will knock out your 401 Nobody's getting your inheritance from God. God guards it. We are the richest people in the world. The people who know Jesus Christ. And we are much in the same pattern in a unique way. That babe came in this world wrapped in rags and will come back with a sword in his mouth. <laughs> Owning everything that God has given him. We too were born with filthy rags. We lived our life with good works that were nothing of God. Reje those things are rejected by him. He opens our mind and heart to the truth. He gives us a new heart. He births us again. He makes us new creatures. He establishes us with a relationship with his son, joint heirs with him, and someday he's coming back and we will serve and worship with the king of kings. Sit at his table. Eat his food. Be in his house for all of eternity. That's salvation. Anything else is a lie. Anything else is a lie. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, bow your knee to him. Like those people in the waters of baptism, beg him to save you. Because only he can. Don't live somebody else's testimony. Don't live, well, I always knew God. You didn't. If you don't know Jesus, Bend your need to him and beg him to save you. He can do that. And he will do that for his glory and your good. Father, this is a great time of life. This season is such a wonderful reminder. We are such a blessed people. The God of creation is now in the cradle. The plan is being executed. It's not the plan of man in fact, man is diversely opposed to this infant. He is not the way we think you should have done things. But God, you are so much greater than us. You had a plan to bring him in to be our representative for us to suffer and be tempted in all things in life. For him to live this life perfect so he could step in our place, take our judgment, be judged in our place by your own hand, God, so that we could receive Christ free of any works and become the most richest people in the world. And so, Lord, we thank you for our salvation. It is the greatest prize we have. If they bury us, Lord, with not assent to our names, we are the richest people because we have Jesus. We thank you for that. May we be reminded of that time and time again throughout this season. Thank you for hearing us today. Thank you for hearing our testimonies, our preaching, and our singing, Lord. Now hear our closing song as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.